This is getting out of hand. Now there are two of them. Where's your innovation, huh? Sequels suck. Do the same thing. Everyone's happy. It's all about money, boys! Here we go again. Harry Potter, the boy who lived, come to die. Hey guys, and welcome back to another episode of Franchise Fatigue. This is a show where we explore film series one movie at a time. I'm your host, James Hamrick, and I am joined not only with my co-host, Gabe Green, but also with another guest this week, Chad Hopkins of the Cinescope Podcast. Hey guys, how's it going? Hey, good to have you back, man. Glad to be back. Uh, glad to be talking about the best worst movie of the franchise, maybe. Um, that, that's that's an overstatement. That's definitely hyperbole, but I'm excited to talk about it nonetheless. Maybe it's the worst best movie. Oh, it might be. Oh, yeah, you got a good point there. Bring James. up a good point. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so we are uh, about to about to wrap up the uh, OG Harry Potter series with uh, Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows Part Two. Um, Still a couple more uh, uh, Wizarding World films to talk about after that, but this is the the uh, end of the first eight films. Uh, but before we talk about that, I want to ask you guys, if you enjoy the show, to please uh, take a moment to uh, head over to iTunes and subscribe and leave us a rating and review. And also like us on Facebook um, to keep up to date with all the latest episodes and to leave feedback that can end up on the show. Hey guys, Future Gabe here. So initially, James and I were going to talk about all the behind-the-scenes production stuff and box office and all that on a different day just because of limited time on the initial day of recording. However, James and I weren't able to line up our schedule, so it's just going to be me for most of the behind-the-scenes stuff. I'll be popping in and out throughout the episode. So, on to the feedback. On Facebook, Stone said, I think it was a good decision to split it into two parts, even if the pacing of part one suffers for it. I was still satisfied, though, and Alan Rickman is just so dang great a Snape, especially in this one. Grace said, the Valdi hug makes this one. Uh, and yes, that was a very, very awkward hug. And Ryan Wall, who we had on last episode, said, as I said in our discussion, I think part one got the better of the split, but part two is still a very enjoyable film with some, ver- with some series high notes. The conversation in King's Cross is particularly lovely. And with that, I agree. And as far as the production story for this film... Much of the cast from the previous film returned, but there are a couple new faces worth mentioning. Kieran Hines plays Albus's younger brother, Aberforth Dumbledore, and uh, Kelly MacDonald plays the Grey Lady. She had previously worked with Yates on State of Play and The Girl in the Cafe, uh, both of which also starred Bill Nighy, who popped up in the previous film. Going over to filming, uh, previously the exterior of Hogwarts was generally shot with miniatures, uh, but for the climactic Battle of Hogwarts, They constructed an intricate digital model of the castle to give themselves more freedom to quote-unquote film in and around it, and also because they had to destroy a whole bunch of it. Uh, But they were really proud of this in the -the behind-the-scenes features. They said they put over a year into creating this massive digital um, model of Hogwarts Castle because they just spent so much time putting in as many details as possible. I mean, that's pretty par for the course today. Most stuff, most large fantasy buildings will be uh, will be done with CGI today. But for most of the series, stuff like this would have been shot with a lot of miniatures. And this this series was kind of this series was kind of made in the turning point between more a more practical thing like that and into what we have now with generally with CGI for 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 uh, shots like this. Another thing worth mentioning about the production is that the epilogue of this film had to be entirely reshot. 
they initially shot it with some rather extreme old age makeup on uh, Radcliffe, Watson, Grint, and uh, Wright. Uh, but ultimately, the result just looked a kind of weird. And you, if you look online, you can see pictures and... Yeah, it does not look right at all. So I, I think they definitely made the right choice in going back and reshooting it with a bit some with a subtler makeup. I still don't think they look entirely perfect, but it's a definite improvement of what they first had. Also, this was the first film in the series to be entirely post converted into 3D. Uh, this had become a trend uh, following the massive success of uh, Avatar and Alice in Wonderland. And and for the next nearly a decade, pretty much all big films like this would be post-converted into 3D. Thankfully, that trend seems to be very much on the wane. And uh, finally, it was released on July 15th of 2011, only eight months after the release of Part 1. All right, so moving into our main review, uh, we'll go with to you first, uh, Chad. What's your history with this film and have your thoughts on it evolved over the years? I saw this at, I, I guess it would have been a midnight screening back before they sort of really phased those out. Uh, I don't know, it might have been like one of the early Thursday night showings that they like to do. I wouldn't say nowadays, but COVID. Uh, but anyways, what they transitioned to. And so I, I saw it the day it came out, basically. And I remember waiting in line for a long time and I got my pick of the seat at the IMAX theater. And uh, at the time, I really loved it. And I, I'm not trying to make it sound like I don't really love this movie, but uh, <laughs> I don't remember having any huge immediate gut reactions to things being the way they should or should not have been. Um, I thought it was a really satisfying conclusion and like I still do every time I watch it I cried that very first time uh, probably multiple times because there's a lot to to elicit tears in this film and so uh, that my initial viewing I would say is very positive and I've had a sort of rocky relationship with it over the years just because um, I, I even mentioned the last time I was on the show talking about Order of the Phoenix I do have a, a couple of really specific problems with this movie uh, namely with the final duel between Harry and Voldemort. Um, but overall, it's really great. And I was reminded of that tonight as I watched and as I tried to tried to finalize a ranking of the series <laughs> and uh, repositioned a couple of things accordingly. And uh, yeah, I, I still love it, but there will definitely be some issues that I, I will rant about a little bit. <laughs> All right. How about you, James? Yeah, so. Um... I think I watched this one and Deathly Hallows Part 1 um, on the same day, I think it might have been, um, or it may have been, it may have, this one may have had a, a night to itself. Um, but I remember, you know, I, I think I'd said on our Part 1 review that a lot of the time, I've noticed a lot of time on rankings that not, it's not like a hard and fast rule, but there's kind of a pattern of people who really love Part 1 aren't as big a fans of part two and vice versa. Um, and so I really love part one. And so I was really nervous going into this one actually. Um, but I ended up really liking this one a lot. I, I'm in the part one is better camp. Um, but it was nice when it ended to be like, you know, I hadn't watched this series in full. And now that I have, how nice is it to have another, like, another fantasy series or really just another long running series that ends on a good note, because I feel like those are, aren't super easy to come by. 
you know, uh, I mean, especially if we're just talking about like trilogies, you know, like, oh, the third one's always yours. But even beyond that, it's like, it's so rare for a long running franchise to feel like it, it goes out on a, on a really high note. And so I found this really satisfying uh, in the majority of ways it could be. Um, so I really loved it. I was, I was very pleased. Any evolution since then? Um, so, you know, I've kind of gone back and forth on, on different films as we've gone through the podcast, but I feel like I, on this rewatch, it, it was mostly, um, like I loved the same things that I loved. I had issues with the same thing that I had issues with. So there wasn't necessarily, uh, any, any sharp, uh, changes or reactions. Yeah, so I might end up being the most negative person in this episode. Um, I still do like the film. So yeah, as with all the previous uh, films, I watched this very quickly after finishing the book. I saw them all for the first time on this little 7-inch portable DVD player thing. Um, Probably not the best way, but I had fun. I really love part one, and uh, this one, it did not do a lot for me the first viewing. Um, There were several distinct disappointments. We'll definitely talk about that duel. Uh, (laughs) But subsequent viewings increased my appreciation for it, uh, but not to the degree that it had for other films in the series. And, and so right now I, I like it. I do like it, but I also, I do have a a much more issues for this one than I do for most of Yates films and the series. And I think that's actually a good place to start talking about Yates. I have really, been very vocally uh, supportive of him and the, his style and what he's brought to the Harry Potter series across the podcast. Um, but I think in this film, it did start to detract a little. He like he has the there's a very kind of patient, stoic, austere style. Um, you know, it goes all the way down to the performances where a lot of the performances are much more subdued and a lot of kind of standing around talking very little movement often and i think that's worked really well with the tone of the previous films just because of they're about oppression and fear and just this this atmosphere but once you get to the climax and like all all the previous films have been leading up to this and now everything's exploding i i I wish he brought back some of the, the the energy from Order of the Phoenix. I think like something like that, where that film is like constant forward momentum. I feel like this film kind of he keeps reverting back to this kind of Half Blood Prince, Deathly Hallows Part One kind of static style that doesn't entirely feel in keeping with the fact that this is the explosive climax. Um, and I think that that kind of it it brings it down for a little for me like, all the way across the film where. I like pretty much everything that's happening. I, I think the adaptation of individual sequences is very strong. Like a lot of this is just taken, you know, right from the book and pasted on the screen. But it's 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 it's, it's a it's a it's hard to explain because it's it's such a subtle tonal issue. But it does it does, um, it does a hold me back a little bit with this film. Is that I I love Yates. I love his style, but it 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 doesn't it entirely mesh for me with this film. Any of y'all feel that, or what are y'all? What are y'all's thoughts on Yates' style with this film in particular? So, I mean, I guess I, I'll go ahead and just use this as an opportunity to to kind of talk about my probably my biggest issue with the film, um, 
know, whenever we talked about part one, this, this story isn't, they didn't cut the book in half. Uh, you know, it's the part one got most of the plot heavy stuff and part two got the finale. Um, and I think and a heist. Do a, and a heist. Yeah. It feels <laughs> in a weird way. Like, I mean, this is not, uh, a problem in the way that it is in return of the Jedi, but it kind of gave me return of the Jedi vibes of like, you open up with, here's an adventure we got to do. And then here's the rest of the movie. And it's, it's more folded into the plot in this one. So it's, it's less of a problem than I, I think it is in return of the Jedi. But, um, I think, my issue, and it, it's kind of related to what you're talking about, is that we get to Hogwarts and we just kind of, we're, we're there. Like, this is where we're at now. And because there's not a lot of energy, like, it's hard to think of, like, these particular, like, action beats where you're like, oh, man, like, that was incredible. Like, I think of, like, Helm's Deep or Pelinor Fields, and it's just like, dang, there are incredible things. Like, those are long battles but there's all these individual things to latch onto. And it's not that there's nothing cool happening here. I think the, like visually everything's pretty neat, but it does feel like there's a lack of real energy. And so we're just, we're, because it feels like there's less energy behind the filmmaking, the fact that we're just, we're so confined and there's not a lot of plot beats happening. It, it tends to, I don't know. It, it feels bloated sometimes. And so I think part of that is just the, what this movie gets in terms of where it's split and what it has to work with, as well as kind of mimicking that, that slower kind of more languid feel of the previous films. Yeah. It, 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 this film does have, an odd structure whereas e even though the first film is half a story or two-thirds of a story it you know it feels like it has a beginning a middle and an end like it, it divides quite nicely into three acts this one it has some preamble we're at shell cottage we do the heist and then we're at hogwarts and then we're in i guess a very very long hour and a you know, hour hour and a half long third act it is, it is it is interesting and as i said it, it's not it's a it's a more subtle it's like i can point to this one thing or if they made this change it's a more subtle kind of tonal pacing issue that will probably affect different people differently depending on your taste and how you're feeling films but for me um yeah it, as i said it does it there's it kind of a bit of like it feels like it's moving in fits and starts throughout it just because it doesn't have like a a a, you know, a standard cinematic structure to fall back on. It kind of, it kind of has to make its own way. And sometimes that works with really great sequences. And then it has to figure out how to get to the next sequence without any kind of, you know, prearranged structuring. I don't know if that makes sense, but <laughs> do, do you feel any of that, Chad? I understand the, the stagnation, like, complaint like oh we're at hogwarts and we're just at hogwarts for forever and there's not necessarily a whole lot going on i agree that for the whole latter half of this movie in fact i remember i think i remember when things were being promoted and it was nearing release and previews were out everybody there there was this big talk about how the whole last hour was the battle, the battle of hogwarts i was like oh that's cool the whole 
last hour is the Battle of Hogwarts, but then there's not a whole lot of battle actually going on. We don't see a lot of fight sequences. And in fact, some of the biggest character deaths uh, happen. Well, the all the character deaths in this movie happen off screen pretty much. Um, it's just mm. which which does lead to uh, or it does tend to sorry it does lend to having that dramatic reveal when we enter the great hall after Voldemort says gather your dead tend to your wounded um, and there's Fred lying on the floor uh, and there's Lupin and Tonks laying on the floor and so that's a really emotional thing but I kind of wish we had those final moments where we got to see them stand for the school and stand for Harry and for wizard kind and we we didn't really get those moments we just got a couple of like meaningful glances before everything really started mm -hmm. and if you're a reader you're like or if you've seen the film before you're like oh this is the last time we see this character until they're laying on the floor and so that's really sad but i wish we had more of a send-off for those characters in some ways but in some ways it really <laughs> it doesn't bother me that much so i i don't know if that really answers your question but i i understand the fact that it's like not not a whole lot really does happen as far as like actual action and movement yeah that that there there isn't a lot of action and, and which is a little disappointing because I, I think every nearly every action beat in that final battle is really cool mm -hmm. they they, they, they kind of come in really quick and then they flash to harry potter doing some kind of search for a horcrux somewhere else um then we go back and have a little bit more cool action then we're back to the other thing uh, but he does the action does feel a little disconnected i wish they could have inserted him more into the action yeah Fred's death in it's Fred, right? I, yeah, Fred yeah. dead. That's <laughs> yes. how you remember Fred dead. Perfect. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, his death actually was not on screen, but we we see it happen in the book. We do we do find Tonks and uh, Remus's body similar as they do in the film, but mm -hmm. we actually saw his death in the film. And I think that that definitely was missed. I felt like I th th that did not have nearly the impact for me in the film as it did in the book. I mean, we. You actually got to watch it, and it's really and also uh, Percy's there. We have a whole awesome redemption for Percy that the film doesn't touch on, although they didn't even touch on his uh, his fall either. So yeah, I mean, yeah. we touched on it because we we're attentive watchers and we've read the book, but uh, yeah, the movies didn't. Yeah, um, so let's move into kind of some positives. Uh, just one, I think a, a sequence that's pretty well done overall is the the uh, Green Gots heist. Uh, Chad, what do you think about this sequence? I really like the the whole thing. The the only like small complaint I would have, and I, I'm starting with a complaint. I know when you just said we we're doing positives, <laughs> but uh, the the only small complaint I have is the imperious curse. The it, mm. it's it's a funny sort of comedic effect, but uh, there's no like sort of explanation or weight to it. I don't remember if there was in the book, but I mean it's an unforgivable curse. You know, it's like, and you're also relying on movie watchers to remember one scene from a forgettable movie four movies ago um and so there's there's no context for why what that is or like why it's important that harry uses it or why it's significant that harry uses it that aside that's a very small complaint in the, the grand scheme of things i really like the whole energy of it i think uh helena bonham carter as as hermione as bellatrix is fantastic yes. it's the same sort of thing that we got in yeah. part one except it's more fun because we know the actress and we know the character she's supposed to be and uh then as they descend into the depths of the vault and we get that really awesome mine cart scene with the, the very cool green gods music um it's very different than the green gods 
minecart we saw in the first film, <laughs> but it's more akin to what we read in the books. Yeah. Because I remember Hagrid talking about like feeling sick and like vomiting uh, in a bucket or something like that in the book. And so it's nice that it's like this cool adventure and it's like a really cool descent into the the depths of the bank and into the vaults into, oh, there's dragons here maybe. A very, very cool reveal of uh, all those little pieces and uh, the effect of the multiplying items in the vault is very well yeah. done as as well. It doesn't burn them, but I feel like that might have been a bit too gruesome for a PG thirteen movie. It would have been it would have been gruesome. It would have been hard to keep track of across takes. I think. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I think the way they did yeah, it visually, perfect. the sound design of the kind of multiplying mm-hmm. thing, just the stress of <laughs> the constant piling up stuff. <laughs> yeah, it was very well yeah. done. Yeah, that scene kind of gives me anxiety. <laughs> It's you know, but the, I think the whole the whole burning thing works in the book because I don't know the burden of trying to visualize that and how it's like it doesn't leave them all just like Freddy Krueger by the end of it. It's like you don't really have to worry about that in the book. Um, I actually have the uh, original UK release of Deathly Hallows that has the the cover art that's them uh, flying out of the vault with the burns all over uh, their face. Oh, really? It's pretty cool. Yeah, yeah. Look it up. It's the original uh, children's edition. <laughs> children's uh, edition, UK. <laughs> yeah, it is what it is. Yeah, I, I also I really like that sequence as well. I had the same issue with the uh, the curse from like, it. You get a laugh for like the first couple of seconds. And you're like, oh, it looks funny, but I guess the, this series has never really gotten that curse right. Well, you're like, what? <laughs> I mean. They're not fooling anybody. Either they've got glowing, angry eyes, or they just look like they're high out of their mind. So, <laughs> oh well. But the, the, it's it's one of those great, like, I don't know those those really fun, just shooting like a bottle rock at the very start of the movie kind of openings. And I know I complain about Return of the Jedi, but at the same time, the job is barge. Like that's fun. Like it's just a good time. And so there's something fun about like opening a movie with okay, here we go. And you just start like that. And so jumping right into this, I think is a really fun way to start it. And I'm also like, I'm just a sucker for like monster designs. And I think the dragon in this is like really cool. Like it's just from its, from the design, like the creature design, I think is really, really cool. And it's incredibly well animated. Like it looks super real like the texture like the gross kind of albino skin and the scales the way they protrude like it's 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 a really really solid effect and i love i also i really love the juxtaposition juxtaposition of seeing like creatures in environments not for them and so like just seeing it like explode through the bank floor and fly like i'm (laughs) like this is just cool like this is fun um so I, i yeah i really like the opening a lot the the leathery flapping the wings in the way like in the in the the, the wings in the way the wind blah, blah. yeah lots of w's <laughs> just the way the wind flaps through his wings is just it, the effects have an issue day i think Mm-mm. um and like the holes there like it just it looks everything is interacting with everything in such a realistic way and like even the just them on the dragon like you see that contact and you're like i believe that they're touch like i believe that they're riding on that thing you know because uh, a lot of the time that's where effects break down, but here it just it it all really works. And you know, one of the other things I really love going into that sequence is Harry's confidence that they're going to be able to pull it off. 
um, because he he goes to Grip Hook at Shell Cottage and he says it's not impossible. Grip Hook says it's impossible. You you can't get into the vault. But Harry, who three movies ago was like, I can't teach other people defense against the dark arts, is now like, yeah, we're gonna break mm-hmm. into Gringotts and you're gonna help us do it. Like no big deal. And it's just a, a big character change. And it's like, this is what needs to be done. So this is what we're going to do. It's the chosen one. Got to get it done. Um, <laughs> I, I the, the, since uh, in the last review, James, you mentioned how the uh, the ministry heist, it didn't have the classic planning sequence. Now, when I was watching this movie, got it, it got to be like, oh, wait, there's no planning sequence. It's not right. Um, <laughs> so darn you, James. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's it, you, you mentioned uh, Helena Bottom Carter. She is... It is one of those great, great performances where you forget it's her. Let's just, I'm, I'm looking at Hermione. She gets the, the manners, mannerisms down so well. Um, and Rupert Grit looks really great in a beard. He should do that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, the way they, they filmed that scene, and I think they did the same thing for the, the Green God scene, is they'd have the kid actors go through and do it the way they would do it. And then the adult actors who the, the kids were disguised as would then go and like imitate what they did that's cool uh at least that's that's what i seem to remember i'd love um, to just, just watch so, yeah. full takes of that you know both of them back yeah. to back see how that, that, how that how that goes down yeah yeah that'd be really cool yeah so that's a really fun sequence like there's the, and then they they uh they fly off and then they go to uh hogsmeade um and we meet aberforth um and this is a really good makeup job because if you look at kieran hines he does not look anything like michael gambon but he looks like michael gambon in this film which is wild. Um, yeah, he's, he's, he's just excellent. Like it's another one of those characters like, Oh yeah, you've heard about this guy before. You've definitely heard about him and now he's here and he's important. And, uh, just, let's just move along with it. Um, we run into an issue I talked about previously where the films, they have to deal with, deal with uh, material that they skipped over in a previous story. Um, and here we have, Aberforth's uh, anger and resentment towards Dumbledore. And as he's kind of throwing all that at Harry, it's supposed to be adding on to the fears that Harry already and distrust that and uh, disillusionment that Harry, Harry's already been having about Dumbledore. And, and ultimately Harry has to make the choice. I'm going to trust Dumbledore because that's all I have right now. And it's a really good scene, but because the previous film didn't have that whole section from the book of Harry's growing, uh, the feeling that maybe I didn't know who this guy was. Maybe he, maybe he wasn't as good a guy as I thought he was. Maybe he didn't have a clue what he was doing. Like when you, when you add that great scene onto uh, you know a whole couple chapters worth of fears, it's really powerful. And but since they didn't do that, it's just, it's just it's a really good scene, but. And that's one of, one of my I love that first film so much, but it's one of my disappointments with it is that it, they didn't really do anything at all with that subplot of the, you know the disillusionment over Dumbledore's uh, character. Yeah, I would say that's the only like complaint I have about Aberforth in this film. I, I do agree that Kieran Hines is really good in the the small amount that we get him, but the whole Dumbledore drama, the Rita Skeeter, Life and Lies of Albus Dumbledore from uh, the previous film isn't used in the same way that it's used in the, the film or that it's used in the book. And so that, that whole Dumbledore drama isn't set up well enough for me to, to, to really care about the history with Albus and with Ariana. And then the payoff when he shows up 
later after having quote given up just isn't as satisfying because we don't have that backstory in the film. Yeah. Yeah. It, it definitely feels like they're going for drama. I mean, because obviously that's what they're doing in the books. And um, I feel like, you know, one of the, one thing that the books do so well is not even just within the character of Dumbledore, but it's a running theme of this kind of like deconstruction of heroes because we get the same thing with his father, you know, like his father for the first several books can do no wrong. And we find out he was a real jerk. <laughs> like he, he had a lot of faults. And so there's this, it's a very nuanced take uh, about who you look up to. It's not this entire um, like, character assassination where we're like oh it turns out your heroes are the worst um but it's a very realistic presentation of them and so you know this i feel like in the books that moment was kind of a lot of these themes that have been sprinkled throughout the last few books kind of coming to a head um and here it's just it's there because, you know, I guess, you know, they felt like this is how he acts in the book. So it kind of has to be here, despite the fact that it's not really, it's not capitalizing on something set up before. And, and one thing that I do think really like doesn't work is uh, what they say about the sister. Where like, she's brought up, she's in the painting um, and he says, you know, like he's making these allusions about how, you know, somehow Dumbledore was related to her death. And to me, that's without giving the whole story, like that's just such a big bomb to drop, you know, like, and, and, and not get into it. Like, like, wait a sec, hold on. She died. You're incriminating to some extent, Albus. Like, back up. We can't just walk away. Like, his sister is dead, and he's mad about his brother. Like, there's a story there. So to just, like, subtly drop it, like, hold on. I, I need to... How exactly was he involved in this, you know? Yeah, I think I think the quote was something like, he gave her everything but time. And it's like, well, yeah, what, what does, does that, that mean? mean in the context of this person is now dead? Like... Huh. For more details, buy the book. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. That, that, by this point in the series, I feel like the filmmakers are like, either you read the book or you're just going to be lost. Not our problem anymore. <laughs> He's got the mirror. Don't worry yeah, about and it. You know, I, I am I'm completely okay with that, honestly, with the exception of one thing that we're going <laughs> to talk about eventually. Um, I, I am perfectly okay with the films being a, a supplemental exploration of the books. Like, that's that is a okay with me they don't have to get everything right they don't have to include every single detail and so when i say oh well it doesn't really make sense here yeah it does because i've read the books but in I, i'm just trying to view it as like a movie watcher yeah i i wouldn't really know what's going on uh but can i talk about a, a book change that i think is really really ingeniously done because of how they did leave certain things out sure um it's the approach to finding new horcruxes in this film because we didn't get every single cutscene or every single flashback in uh the half-blood prince film that was in the book about 
Hepzibah Smith with Helga's uh, cup. We don't have all the the stuff about the gray lady. We just don't have all that background that we get in the books in the film. And so it wouldn't really make sense for them to, to find all the items in the same way. And so for them to add this ability for Harry, who is himself a Horcrux, to be able to hear other Horcruxes mm. and to sense them, that is so smart. It is a genius way to handle the problem of not knowing what they're looking for. And so when when we get to the vault, he knows that there's something there because he's able to use logic based on Bellatrix's statements in the previous film. And so it makes sense that they go there. And then once they're there, how would he know what he's looking for? Well, he can sense it because he is a Horcrux himself. And then post Green Gots, when Harry experiences Voldemort's rage at discovering mm-hmm. that everybody knows about the Horcruxes now and that some of them have been taken out, the 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 brief panic that he experiences as he's like, okay, let me think. There's this one over here. There's this one's over here. And Harry witnesses that, and he's like, okay, now I got to go back and to Hogwarts. I believe that's that from is the so book. smart. I think him seeing it, flashes. I think so. Is it well? Okay, but even then, the the ability to sense the 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 diadem whenever he gets to the room of requirement and it's enormous. He's able yeah. to be like, oh, I, I know it's in this direction. Oh, it's nearby now. Oh, there it is because we have a connection. This <laughs> could be around a whole lot of exposition. Um, <laughs> yeah, and, and so we move into Hogwarts and we see Hot Neville, um, who's now awesome and running Dumbledore's <laughs> army. Uh, uh, and. Dean Thomas is that guy. That guy's like seven feet tall. That's He's insane. It's, it's insane. And it, it, it's so wonderful. See and how many actors they kept over. Like several of them from the very first film, several from Goblet of Fire, Order of the Phoenix, Half of Prince. Like they, they, there's so many characters. Like they most of them haven't even had more than a couple lines throughout the series. But just seeing all getting into the room requirement and seeing all these familiar faces, it's really wonderful. And I. It just it may, it there, it's one of the things that makes the series special is just how many characters we get to see grow up from just tiny little children into you know fully grown adults. Or even just getting John Hurt back after not seeing him since the first film. Yeah, right? I don't. He hasn't been in anything since Sorcerer's Stone. Well, um, the so last film, but to, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But even then, nine years later, for him to come back and be like, "Oh yeah, I'm so Ollivander. I'm and still here." Still and great. To, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, he's he's fantastic in this film. And he's very good. You were talking about in, the, in in our Sorcerer's Stone review, like this is this is why you hire these legendary actors to come in for this bit part because they just add so much gravitas and like like you know Karen Hines for Aberforth or John Hurt for um for Ollivander, like these are really important scenes and we don't have time to you to you know to we can't give them the same amount of time they had in the book. So just have a really good actor come in, give the gravitas necessary. And we believe it. Then we move on. We have the uh, confrontation with Snape uh, and Helen Rickman is so good at showing everything and nothing in his face. Just like the, the opening shot of the film is you know, him standing up over looking down at, at what he's wrought with what Hogwarts. And you're like, and you, it's one of the, it's one of those performances where you can you can just like put your own feelings on whatever is going on in his face, um, which is which is something from the book. We're constantly mentioning how his face is like a mask and he can hide whatever he's feeling. And you have Harry come out and confront him. <laughs> that that line in the trailer, you know, how dare you stand where he stood? The man who you know, 
the man, man who trusted you and you looked him in the eye and killed him that was in all the um the promotionals and trailers for the film so that spoiled uh spoiled it for me that um that Snape killed Dumbledore oh. uh before I read oh, the no. books <laughs> just that one line in the trailers oh no yeah but um and then McGonagall coming in you have the duel the Order of the Phoenix comes in uh there's a little touch as McGonagall is dueling with Snape where you can see he deflects her spells into the carrows behind him. Yeah, I was going to mention that if you didn't. I'm glad you did. It's it's a very subtle thing if you're not looking for it. But the way he takes out the carrows to to prevent them wreaking any havoc in his absence is really, really great. What a fantastic moment kind of translated from the book. It's just the, the emotion of going into preparing the castle. All the Order of the Phoenix comes in. They're preparing everything. McGonagall is doing the uh, the spell to awaken the the the, uh, the stone knights and the musical theme as they're marching out um mm -hmm. uh, it's, it's just the visual of the way they create the giant shield over the school with the, just the, the one spell at a time going up and joining into the stream and it kind of it's just really cool visuals really gorgeous music it, i i love it so much yeah, the so the initial like confrontation between McGonagall and Snape, I really love because something about Rickman's performance in that I feel like it works both viewings. Like the first time, something that I really love about this is that without knowing the twist, I think like I don't know if you know people who who watched it without knowing. To me, like you, it really holds up. Like you'd be like, oh yeah, he's evil. Like especially with with the pauses and the stress of like, you know, their, uh, his comments about punishment and like equally, yeah. like all of that stuff, like, oh. Treated as equally. Yeah, like, it's, like, man, that is classic evil Snape. And then like whenever he, like McGonagall, and I love that moment. I love that McGonagall is like the first to step out. I'm like, oh, she's the best. But you see, like the first time it looks like, I don't know, you can interpret it, you can interpret it as, you know, he's still, he's still evil in that moment. But on rewatch, you can kind of see in his performance, like, like he's not, like there, there's just, he wishes this isn't, this wasn't what he had to do. You know, like he's not, I don't know. There's, there's a quiet kind of regret in his face, especially as McGonagall approaches. And you're like, Rickman, you're really, you're a good actor if people didn't know. <laughs> yeah. Then we're kind of moving into the battle. What, what are y'all's thoughts on this? Um, we've kind of, we kind of mentioned some, uh, I guess, our problems with it. What, what are some things we like about it? Uh, start with you, James. Uh, I, I love the scale. Like, I, I love me some big wide shots. Let's see how, sh show off. Show me how many people are in this <laughs> battle. Like, really, really lean into that. And I also- I did I not know that there were this many wizards in England, but okay. <laughs> Listen, they're coming from all over the world. Um, I, I'm also a bit like a sucker for the kind of like standing atop a rock overlooking the battlefield kind of thing. Like, uh, just the character, a composition that can get like a very clearly defined lead character of the shot while also like showing off the scope of everything in it. Like those kinds of shots are great. And so I love seeing Voldemort like, overlooking Hogwarts with his massive army behind him and like stuff like that is just really cool or the the army amassed at the bridge uh 
so anytime they really just go wild with their budget and just be like, we've got giants everywhere. We've got armies everywhere. We've got spells being cast everywhere. There's debris falling everywhere. Like anytime they, they really show off how big and epic the battle is. Like, I, I really, really enjoy that. I, uh, I, I also really like the scope of things. I like that we get to travel to different places on the castle, um, places that we have been absent from for a film at this point. Involving the um, wooden bridge in the way they did, I thought was really cool. Exactly. Boom. <laughs> um, <laughs> going back to the bridge, going to the, the boathouse, which isn't something that was really explored in the films prior to this, but it was a part of the the part of the the geography of the castle and i remember in the the harry potter video games that was a location you could go to and so it was cool that they they make the boathouse a, an important location um and the stadium then burning the, down, the, the, uh, oh, the stadium burning down yeah the quidditch pitch um and also i really like the effect of voldemort uh voldemort talking in everybody's yeah. heads like it's this almost deafening whisper and this like intense pressure, at, almost like everybody's getting an earache or like you're in an uh, uh, airplane, you know, taking off and you've got that bad pressure in your ears and there's this, this whispering. I, I think that effect is really well done and it definitely is a better experience. And I think what I remember from the book, which I think all of Voldemort's text in those moments is like caps lock. So you get a little bit of caps lock Harry <laughs> from Voldemort in the book. And so it was nice to, to just have that delivered uh, the way they did and to make it such an intense intimate and scary thing yeah it's, it's, it's like it's not just a loud like loudspeaker voice like he's in each of their heads it's something kind of violating about that and it's really well done just we hear the, the little girl start screaming off in the corner we go into these creepy dutch angles and all that i i, I think when yates leans into horror he does it really well like we talked about that with uh Actually, both with um, in the in part one, just the horrible um, snake scene uh, with the mutating lady. Um, Matilda Bagshot. Yes, yes, and and then the weird little surreal moment of being in like the doll room. I don't know. It's very creepy. And then I think the like the floating screaming from or uh, or from the Half-Blood Prince is like full on horror movie. And I got that same kind of horror vibe here with the with the weird floaty, almost like woozy camera just drifting around. And there's something about the, the camera holding on the first girl screaming. Like there's such an air of confusion and it's just made all the worse by like, she's screaming. <laughs> like what, what's going on? But why is, why is anything happening that's happening right now? Why is like, we're already confused. And now we've got this like, girl looking like she's fighting off a possession it's just it's such a creepy environment and i really really love that scene yeah there, there are so many just cool little bits and moments throughout this battle the shot flying over the death eater army as each as they're all firing at the shield um there's a shot that it starts outside the courtyard then we fly up with a death ear through a through a window, he shoot he hits one guy. Then he engages with Arthur. Then we go past them as Kingsley, you know, tosses another death ear out the window. It's just like it's these really crazy, um, unique shots. Uh, 
uh, with the uh, the rabble of like snatchers and werewolves runs into the uh, the shield and starts just disintegrating. And I love that they brought back the really yeah, the diva snatcher dude from the first film, <laughs> the British prog rocker. Like he just he adds so much more personality to that you know to his little bit there, um, as he's you know facing off against Neville. Yeah, the, the visual of the bridge collapsing was really cool. I love the wide shot of like the spells being like it's it's the that that landscape kind of shot of him running across the bridge with all of the spells going off. Mm-hmm. It's, it's really cool. yeah, good little comedy bit. Um, and another ch- change I like from the book is that Voldemort can can feel when Horcruxes are being destroyed in this film. Um, like, don't think about it too hard because you wonder why he didn't feel it earlier. But in, in the context of this film, He's I think it's... He's getting weaker and weaker it, each time. He can feel it now. That's what I told myself. Yeah. Yeah. He's thinking about it. Uh, <laughs> but just every time it happens, you, you see him kind of... The, just the building rage and desperation in, in Ray Fine's performance as each one is destroyed. Uh, just like the scream of rage as he throws all his power against the shield and brings it down. Um, just that, like a lot, I, I love it. Just adds, it adds a sense of danger. Even like, yeah, yeah, we're getting closer. We had that little victory, but also, he, Voldemort is all that much more scary. Yeah, and, and on the uh, subject of uh, Ray Fiennes, uh, how how do y'all like him in this film? I think he's appropriately scary in the ways we've seen him before. This is the most we've gotten of Voldemort at all since that very first scene in Goblet of Fire. Uh, when he was resurrected and um, there are definitely a couple of awkward moments. Um, <laughs> He's kind of a giant I, I, dork. He is kind of a giant dork. Harry Potter's dead. <laughs> um, <laughs> but overall, I think he, he, he does the job. He is appropriately scary. That moment you were mentioning where he completely obliterates the, the dome of protection when the whole army of death eaters couldn't um is it's a showcase of his powers and i think that the the whisper the that that ray Fiennes does in character is so much more menacing than any kind of scream or yell or anything like that um which is why that whisper effect in everybody's ears is so effective yeah speaking of that awkwardness that, that final seed like the, the seed in the courtyard where he's just there's something just so weird about this dude. Um, like when after uh, Neville interrupts him and he like goes into like almost a convulsion as he's trying to control his anger that this you know peon would speak to him, but he's like, okay, I've won the battle. I could be you know, I could be magnanimous for a couple seconds. I'll still kill him later, but I'll I'll hear him out. Like just uh, he's, he's it's almost just almost funny, it's just how kind yeah. of awkward he could be. But when he does need to be terrifying, like when he. You know, decides to kill Snape, and like he, like he leaves before Snape even dies. Like that's just how cold and how little he cares, um, and how little regard he has for any kind of life. Or, or he just he kills a pious thickness just for speaking to him at the wrong time. <laughs> like yeah, like that that kind of evil power is really well portrayed. Also with a a lot of interesting quirks. Yeah, so I'm I'm a massive fan of finds in the role. Uh, what's weird to me is like a lot of the time it's it's the weird quirks that end up being the creepy like the thing that makes them scariest like though it's there is something dorky like it's it's 
there's something off-putting about it and like I even think his whole like Harry Potter's dead, like that laugh, like that big laugh he does with a huge smile, like, like that. That's I don't know. That's weird, man. You're just you're uncomfortable. He, to me, he's just he feels like this weird sadistic thing that like even whatever like lies in the pit of hell is like that thing freaks me out. There's something wrong with that guy. <laughs> uh, it just feels like a messed up kind of weird like just really twisted kind of evil that's just doesn't know what to do with its body and just laughs in the wrong ways and is like moves in the wrong ways and like i like that little convulsion like whenever uh neville is you know speaking up he's like and then he like pulls himself together and, and then like as the speech goes on and he's just like got the biggest smile he could possibly have like in it unchanging that smile that you just mentioned is actually, I think, one of my favorite moments from him in the film is the as as Neville is giving this rousing speech about how Harry didn't die in vain and his heart bled for us. And it's like, yeah, we can't give up hope. We can't we can't go join Voldemort. This this is still our fight. Yeah, we might die, but at least we die doing the right thing. That kind of speech from Neville and Voldemort's just like, well, Harry's dead, so I won. And he's like laughing. And it, it, it's a really like delicious moment for him as a villain. Like you can say what you want. Harry Potter is still dead. So and, and like I knowing win. how evil he is, he's almost he's happy that they still have hope at this moment. Like, oh man, these poor guys think they still got a chance. I can't wait. <laughs> like he's just oh and he's good. I don't know, man. He is a he's a weird guy. <laughs> and that hug. I, I I don't believe he has ever willingly hugged someone in his life at his shows. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, probably, probably not. And it's funny, I've heard that scene plays completely different uh, depending on what side of the Atlantic you're on. Mm. Uh, American audiences kind of thought it was really funny overall. Uh, I like I, I think I remember a laugh in the theater. I, I don't know, I might be imagining it, but I remember hearing people in the UK say, wow, this is like really uncomfortable uh, <laughs> I mean, in, in the, the proper way, <laughs> in the proper way. Not just like, well, that was kind of weird, but like, oh man, this is like terrifying, uncomfortable. <laughs> wow yeah i mean it, i th i think in a way americans are kind of laughing to just relieve the tension of like this is this is so freaking weird weird evil um, is the well i think it's a cultural thing as well do do brits just not hug as much or i do think they're a less maybe i'll get get your podcast in trouble saying this i don't think they're as like forthright with their emotions or at least maybe that's a stereotype in a certain way like, I don't know, I, I think of like Americans as shaking hands and giving hugs and that in a lot of ways. Like, I mean, I've got friends that I hug and hug, hug every time I see them or every time I say goodbye. Uh, but I don't know if that's the norm in other places in the world. Interesting. I don't know. Maybe I'm just making stuff up. We kind of uh, skipped over uh, Snape's death seed and then the Snape story we hear. Um, yeah. So first off, the scene where he kills Snape is super dark. And this is a scene where I think Yates' restraint really goes a long ways. Um, just the, the the horrible cruelty of using Sectum Semper against Snape, uh, you know, his own spell against him. Like, that's, that's something like, like, sure, Voldemort is, he's saying, you know, you know, thank you for your service, but also there's a real glee and just sadism in, in how he does it. Um, and then cutting to the outside of the window as the snakes, you know, just like throwing his body up against it, really disturbing. 
and you, you've you even before even before we learn about um you know about uh snape be, actually being a good guy you're really feeling for him i i think harry sympathizes with him in that moment too because the very first thing he does once voldemort's gone and harry comes around the corner he like holds the wound on his neck closed and like lifts his head up to him and it's like I don't know if there wasn't sympathy there if Harry would willingly get so close when the last time they confronted each other, there was so much contempt. Yeah. Lots happened since then. Yeah. It's a, it's a, it's a gruesome death. It's a terrible way to die and it's overkill in a way too, because he was already going to be bleeding out and now here he's going to be killed by the snake as well. Um, It's just like Voldemort wanted to make sure he's good and dead, but also doesn't care to stick around to watch it happen. Um, yeah, mm-hmm. um, I, I guess I'm just super dark. I'm always a, I'm always up for a brutal <laughs> character death, and that the shot, like from that angle, looking at it from the top down with him pressed against the glass, when like oh, oof. and like because it's not like a solid wall, but it's like this, it's this window. There's more give to the wall, so you just you feel the weight every time that snake just you know bites out at him and throws him back you just oh that's a that's a big freaking python that's right like this is it it feels painful um and yeah once again rickman's performance is great like that there's a there's a very uncomfortable kind of vulnerability to him in that moment i think that's like oh my gosh i just it's one of those moments where you're like this feels really real like this feels Poor man, like this man is dying right now. Like, it feels weird to be privy to all this. Um, I think it's just a testament to like how much he's able to humanize the character in such a small amount of time. Yeah, that leads us to kind of Snape's story. Um, so, let me ask you guys: like, first, how, how do y'all feel about his character, particularly in light of this revelation in the book, and how well do you think it was translated into the film? Um, start with you first, James. So I, I think it all really works really well in, in the, the movie. And I think it's translated really, really well from the book. Like there's the most I could, uh, I could criticize is like little quibbles here and there. For, at least for me, there's not like the, man, it's just, there's this one thing that I wish they could have done. And it really kind of brought it down a peg. Like, no, I, I, I mean, I think Rickman, obviously, just as an actor, looks or it plays the part incredible the the his he looks perfect in the role and i think i mean my thoughts for him at this moment really mimics my thoughts for him at that moment in the book of just i'm not at all on board the he was a he was a lovable guy the whole time we just didn't know (laughs) like he's a terrible person but that's that makes him even more interesting like if he were this guy with a heart of gold at the end i'd be like hmm lame you just pulled a 180 like a little switcheroo you got me it's like no he was it like those kinds of characters are the most challenging ones where you're like you you just made me sympathize with the monster like i think humanizing awful people ends up being some of the most like rewarding character arcs and like compelling characters and so the because then you get fanfic (laughs) um 
but like yeah I, I love that there wasn't this reveal of like uh, he was fighting telling harry that he just wanted to be a father to him this whole time like no he he didn't like harry he didn't like harry's dad he was a bad person the only he would have been in um voldemort's army had it not been for lily like what was going on there he's he he was committed to the cause for a bit like this is not a he's not a good guy um he just let this other aspect of himself win out and he committed to that portion um and i think it just made him really really interesting um i think i probably would have advised harry against naming his son after him but <laughs> uh but i really like him as a character and i think all of it translates really well in the movies yeah i agree i i on all counts i don't buy into the whole snape's an actually good guy kind of thing i mean he certainly was brave he certainly did do a a heroic thing in ultimately betraying voldemort um and doing his best to protect harry over the years even though he was also kind of an ass to him uh, kind of being an understatement <laughs> here uh, <laughs> uh, but i i do think that it translated really well from the book into the film as well i i wrote in my notes that the the prince's tale scene is masterful just the the way the the memories are assembled in a way that makes sense and that i i would think and i would hope that an average non-book reader moviegoer would hopefully understand that there was this relationship between snape and harry's mother they uh had a falling out at some point obviously snape still had feelings for her and that that whole story was communicated i thought pretty effectively um and it's a hugely affecting scene like it's a really emotional thing and for it to culminate in yes harry has to die and it's voldemort that must do it and then for us to leave the poncive and harry like just be staring at harry and that the re realization of what he just witnessed and what he now has to do just sitting heavy on his heart i think it, it's just a it's a really really well done scene in a film that could have done it very poorly yeah i i do wish there was like one or two more like brief scenes with uh snape and lily together i think we got from like childhood to all of a sudden she's married to james like wait this, there's probably some story there um you know honestly i think the the thing that might have been most important to include that wasn't included was snape calling her a mudblood yeah because that was their falling out in the books to begin with was he called her a mudblood in a moment when i think she was trying to uh defend him from james or something mm -hmm. and he just sort of snapped out and so that would have been a really important one to include for uh why that rift was created but also i can see why they wouldn't include it because then it would take away from the sympathy we're supposed to be feeling for snape in the moment yeah but the the, what, the thing that really stood out to me this time was the nature of the interactions between dumbledore and snape in this and Something that was really dark is that Dumbledore asking what will Snape give him in return for protecting Lily, which is like, obviously Dumbledore will do it anyway, but he mm -hmm. knows that Snape thinks like a Death Eater, therefore he thinks selfishly and assumes that everyone else does as well, so he knows he can essentially extort this service out of Snape because he's desperate, a, a thing he would already do because he's a good guy, like, and then like later on um when uh, he's like you know he has her eyes if you truly loved her like he's so he's really hardcore manipulating this dude 
that's Dumbledore's MO. Though. And yeah, it's like <laughs> it's almost like almost like he doesn't even view Snape as a good guy. Like he's he trusts Snape, and I, I truly believe that. They, I think by the end they did have some kind of rapport going on, but it's almost like he knows Snape is a fundamentally selfish creature. That's why he trusts him because he knows what motivates him. And uh, it's so fascinating. It's just the way that Dumbledore could be so kind in some circumstances, but so cold and mercenary in dealing with, I guess the quote unquote bad guys or, you know, and, <laughs> it, it, it's, it's really fascinating. And a uh, Gambon is so good in that. Like just the, he, he, he plays the, he gets to play the kind quirky grandfatherly Dumbledore in some scenes. And then when he's with Snape, it's just cold business. Um, it's really good. And uh, there's, there's so many revelations that come out of this. Be like, you know, Snape loves Lily. He killed Dumbledore under Dumbledore's orders. He's been, you know, he's been on at least not, if not a good guy on the good side all along. And oh yeah, Harry's a Horcrux and he has to die in order for Voldemort to be killed. Like all of that happens in like 10 minutes. And I think just for that massive of a, um, you know, exposition dub is really well done. And it, it, you know, it kind of floored me in the book and it, I think it, do, it does pretty well. Um, Snape gets a really, uh, you know, really good lives. Like, You've kept him alive so that he could die at the proper moment. You could raise him like a pig for slaughter. And like <laughs> when even Snape thinks that your plans are cold blooded. Yeah. And I love, you, you know, he's, he's being accused of those things and Dumbledore does not like break from, you know, the, his tactic with uh, Snape. Because then he replied, like, don't tell me you started to care for the boy. Like, it's, I, <laughs> I really, really love Dumbledore as a character. Like, it's, he's so fascinating to me. Um, but I, I definitely agree. Like, the, the amount of stuff that is done in that is insane. And aside from, like, yeah, I, you know, maybe a, a couple more beats with them could help. But in general, I, I don't walk away from that scene being like, ah, oh, man. You know, I just I wish they could have done this. Like it's, it's all done. Um, I think really, really well. And the the aftermath of it in the film really hits me in a very similar way it did in the book. Like I remember, it was a weird feeling I had reading the book. Like the amount of time you spend just reading, like Harry's internal, like just the heaviness of the feet, like we had to be with him for the walk. Like we had to be with him when he heard, I've got to wait, I've got to die. And like the, the mm. walk, the slow, quiet walk to the forbidden forest. It just, it felt like I was on a death March. Like it was so, I don't know, very, like it was very, very uncomfortable to read. Uh, and it, it just, it felt like that whole thing I ended up like weighing really heavy on me as I read it. And I think they do a really good job of capturing that feeling or like Harry's shock when he comes out of the Pensieve. He's just like, he feels so, so terrified. Um, and so, I don't know. There's a very, it's not the kind of heroic, like, ah, oh, well, you know what you got to do what you got to do. It's like, he feels, feels like an 18 year old kid who just found out he has to die to save the world. And he's, really scared and something that they do that i love is you know when he's seeing all the ghosts one of the first things he does is you ask hey does dying hurt like mm -hmm. it, he's freaking out about it and so i know that's getting ahead of the pensive scene itself but 
but every like everything around that whole sequence to me just really really works yeah radcliffe again is like he doesn't get as many chances to shine in this film just because of the whole there's so much happening around him but this particular moment, just taking in the shock, um, was really good. Oh, it, th- I forgot to mention the scene, his se- argument with Aberforth. I think he's quite excellent there too, as well. Um, in I forget in the book, does he get a chance to talk to uh, Ron and Hermione before going out, or does he just leave? Yeah, as I was he, just leaves, he, he talks to Neville. It. He talk, like he gives Neville some information, like you have to kill the snake, and then leaves. Yeah. Um, one more thing that I do want to point out. Uh, I mean, just to add one more little heap of praise onto Rickman, I think the moment he sees Lily on the floor is phenomenal. Like, it is just the look on his face, his entire body language changes. We've never seen Snape look like this. But it feels so in keeping with what they're doing with the character here. I just, I think that particular moment is like devastating. Mm. Yeah, and, and I, I do like the the scene between um, Harry and Ron and Hermione. Um, like they they know this is what needs to be done, and like they could have played it up for you know false drama, but it's like no, it just just like you know he hugs Hermione, it just gives Ron a look, and they share this look over her shoulder, and so much is said right there. I also love that like as soon as Harry like as soon as things are spoken and Hermione like because he, he says you know like, I think you've kind of always known it's it's the, that classic thing of, like we, we do this thing where where we kind of know something but we don't really react to it until reality forces us to you know think about the fact like okay this is a real thing like as soon as it's not real until somebody says it and all of a sudden you're like oh crap this is a real thing and so you know as this is now this thing that Hermione, you know, may have kind of secretly thought and was really hoping against now that it's brought out to the open, like the second it's brought in the open, she just breaks down and cries. And I'm like, Oh, what a, what a real moment. Like what a, what a realistic reaction to, to this scenario. And if you weren't already emotionally broken, we get the resurrection stone scene um, and essentially get, all the various parental figures Harry's had over the years kind of coming. And it, again, it's really underplayed, very simple, really emotional dialogue. It's like, as you said, you know, does it hurt? Like the kind of things you would ask if you're going to die. And just the line, you know, I never meant for any of you to die for me, kind of all the weight of his life and all the lives that have, you know, come together to bring him to where he is now. Uh, it's, it's, I w I was really close to tears last night watching this sequence. <laughs> yeah. Sirius is the most meaningful character to appear there for me, uh, just because it's been a few films since we've seen him and we actually have that relationship with him and for him to just be so gentle with Harry as he's honestly. facing his own death after, after seeing Sirius's death in the veil. Um, and I mean, I guess he's technically the only one who, Harry witnessed dying because I mean obviously he was an infant when his parents died Remus he just found him lying on the floor um and so I'm I'm glad that he gets to have that moment with Remus as well um considering that he just died and he does have this baby son at home um that he's not going to be able to be there for just like Harry didn't have his parents there with him uh but for Sirius uh who he actually had a relationship with and to 
uh, for for Harry to turn too serious because he witnessed his death and say, does it hurt? I think it, it's very intentional that he asks serious that question out of anybody. Yeah. And once again, if you've forgotten, Gary Oldman is the best. Yeah, he is. <laughs> uh, then he goes and he dies. Um, yeah, that I was never, it was definitely not expecting that when I started this book. Um, and we get the scene, the scene in uh, King's Cross. Um, I just see Dumbledore again. He's like, oh, Harry, you wonderful boy, you brave, brave man. And uh, there's so, and like, it's, I like that, you know, we get four of the parental figures in the, with the resurrection stone and the final one in this scene, like he gets to see all the various parental figures at some point or another surrounding his death. And I've, I've loved with a, with a couple exceptions, I've really loved Michael Gambon's work across. But I think he's at his absolute best here where he, he's got the wisdom, but also just that weird little quirkiness and kind of the delivery um and the kindness and and all of that put together uh really effective um uh what, what are y'all's thoughts on the uh, the king's crossing i love how peaceful it is in the aftermath of the the violence that we've seen in the aftermath of the death that we've seen and uh and in contrast with the darkness of the the forbidden forest to go immediately from that to that bright blinding white light and for Harry to be without his glasses and for Gandalf, to, or, <laughs> there I go. I was thinking just a second, it's like Gandalf the white um, for, for Dumbledore to be literally like glowing in the brightness and for it to just be this moment of serenity and the possibility of just venturing away from this place. Um, I, I really like that aspect of it. And I, I agree that Gambon is fantastic here. Um, I think this is also one of those moments that Richard Harris, had he lived this long, he would have been really great at this kind of scene. But I also agree with things we've said in the past that Gambon really fit the bill for the more intense Dumbledore scenes that I don't think Richard Harris would have been able to do as well. Um, so I'm I'm thankful for Gambon here. And uh, I, I like that we finally have a moment where Dumbledore is more or less forthright to Harry. Like this is this is what's been going on. This is... I'm I'm sorry that this is what you went through, but here's some answers finally. Yeah, it's well, that'd probably be a good place to also kind of hash out our feelings on Dumbledore. I I, I forget which episode it was where we're talking about like the nature of the way he manipulates and schemes and and uh, uses people. Um, what, what I think it was you, James, who was kind of having questions about it. Then now that we've kind of had the full arc with this character, what are your thoughts on him? So I always loved that aspect of his character. My mine was it was less about the character and more about plot stuff. Um, and I I think I brought up something where like ah, I don't know if this is a problem. I guess we'll have to wait and see how it like what they say because we couldn't really remember how they address it in this one. And it kind of is a problem. The the thing is the um, which one is it? Is it the Half Blood Prince? Yeah, whenever whenever he hears about the number of horcruxes and he's and it feels like he's discovering the idea of horcruxes for the first time like half that scene in half-blood prince makes it feel like that was the information he needed like he he didn't know what would happen and he hears horcruxes oh my gosh like it's a discovery and i was like wait a second but i thought he kind of i thought part of snape's you know, part of his comments was like, like, oh, you've been raising Harry Potter to do this. And I think we were like, is that just his line in the book? And they address it differently. Um, but 
the movie definitely is like, oh no, you know, Snape says you've been raising him like a pig for the slaughter. Um, despite the fact that in Half Blood Prince, that that scene plays it out as if Dumbledore is just now discovering uh, hmm. what's going on. Like he said, or maybe he just doesn't feel the need to defend himself against to Snape. Because that, that that that's a it does happen that is happening during half blood prince so i'm not sure we know the exact order of events well the 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 line that really kind of to me becomes the problem is whenever he talks about tom riddle's diary and it, his the line is like i knew there was a magic about that book i had no idea what kind of dark magic like he basically explicitly says i had no idea what this thing really was um, and that's in Half Blood. At least in, at least maybe at Chamber of Secrets. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, oh, sorry. The line yeah. I, un, until now, I had no idea how okay. dark until now, and that was right after mm. they see the full memory. Yeah, I'm not sure if that's a contradiction within the films or they just kind of forgot what they did and how he knew. I mean, it, it is a very, very complicated plot he's got going on there. Yeah. And I, I I think I kind of stand by what I said there is that yes, he is wildly manipulative and he he is using people, but I think I think ultimately is that his way of manipulating Harry was to raise him to be a good man who when the time came would choose to lay down his life for his friends. And just that line, you know, you wonderful boy, you brave, brave man. It's it wasn't about, you know, will Harry Will or Harry, will or he or won't he do this thing I need him to do? It is, will or will he not choose to do the right thing in the moment, you know, uh, when the time comes? Like, did I raise him, you know, to be the kind of man he needed to be in that moment? So is it questionable? Yeah. Um, but I, I think it is definitely very interesting, um, just the the way he approaches it. Like, just, you know, the way he approaches them, you know, using people that he considers to be good people versus how he uses people like Snape. Um, I don't know. Any thoughts on that, Chad? I have always liked Dumbledore as a character, but uh, I agree that he does have his his manipulation and especially seeing in the, the, the Prince's Tale scene how he does sort of make Snape feel bad. Like, well, I mean, you loved Lily, didn't you? I mean, if you loved Lily, then prove it. Watch after his kid, you know? Uh, he, he, and that line that you mentioned earlier, uh, when Snape first approached him, he says, well, what are you going to do for me if I protect Lily? Um, I, I, that stood out to me while watching as well. Um, but I do think that despite his manipulation, Dumbledore always had the best interests of, uh, wizard kind and of Harry for the most part in mind. Um, but obviously the ultimate goal was to defeat Voldemort. And he trusted Harry to to be able to get to this point where he could make that decision to sacrifice himself. Um, so, yeah, definitely questionable in his manipulation of children. <laughs> but the 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 method behind not the method behind the madness, but the it was a means to an end. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I I think the jump from just um, above reproach and everything perfect grandfather. The jump from that to master manipulator is what takes him from 
a good character to like for me one of my favorite literary characters like i think it is the manipulation that makes him so fascinating like the questions about the morality of his actions really to me make the character go into the most interesting places possible like with with what you have there and i i think that they end with end with the character in a place that's perfect where it's you're not like was he even a good guy like at the end you're like no dumbledore is a good guy <laughs> like anybody out there with those kinds of hot takes like just shut up but it isn't <laughs> above it isn't above board it isn't above reproach you know there's i think if it ended if his character ended in the series without anything questionable it would have been less interesting because even this idea of you know he was raising him to be a good man so that he would choose of his own volition that's that itself like as you know um that like that's the kindest version of a of a questionable thing you know but we're not out of the like that's still manipulative like i am i want you to be able to like i'm i'm nurturing you you know this whole idea of nature versus nurture i am i am being the nurturing agent that forms you into the person who would choose this thing that i really need you to choose um and it, it feels like it's this idea of of giving him a choice is this way of easing his conscience you know um and I don't know, like, it's just, he's such an interesting character to think about, which is why I love, you know, just how far into that um, the Deathly Hallows book goes, because it isn't like, a, oh, your hero sucks, but it's also, not, it doesn't absolve him entirely by the end. It just leaves him like, he's a really good guy who did some kind of questionable things. And I don't know if I'm, I don't know if he did anything wrong, you know, like, what? who would I, would I have done anything different? Can I judge what he did? I mean, we, we got questions like that with real life historical leaders all the time of like, dang, now that we're like decades removed from this thing, we can all like academically talk about the rights and wrongs of things, but who am I to say so far removed? And, and that's kind of how I feel with the characters. He is, he is trying to, as, in an, as morally upright a way possible, navigate very murky territory. And it just makes them super interesting. All right. Uh, one last thing before we move into kind of the final confrontation. I love that you know, Narcissa uh, Malfoy uh, betrays Voldemort for love, you know, just like Snape did before him. Like, that is something Voldemort always under, underestimates. And you know, it's what leads to his destruction several times. And uh, then we have the big scene. Uh, so I, I, I know you know me and Chad have thoughts on the final confrontation between uh, Harry and Voldemort. What are your thoughts on overall on this entire sequence, James? Uh, I think, I think it goes on a little too long. Like, to me, because we're already, like, we've already got a whole battle <laughs> that's happened, um, and I think they we go from like this this kind of quiet this creepy quiet you know the this disturbing calm after the battle into and now here's three more beats all happening concurrently like you got harry running and then you've got this like ron and hermione with the snake and then neville coming to and running with the sword and like 
uh, Molly and um, Bellatrix. Like, like all of a sudden we get the the same amount of like little side beats happening as you did in the main battle. And it's like, we just, we had this really great scene. Like, let's not, let's not force one last, like, let's, let's get a quick 15 minute action sequence. Like let's bang one more 15 minute action scene out. And so I feel like as it goes on, I'm like, man, just kill the snake. <laughs> just stop, right? Just let's stop. We don't need slow-mo. I know he's not going to go in. And I think part of it is also just like having read the books. I know that Ron and Hermione don't die. So like all of these are like slow-mo snake is lunging at them. I'm like, come on, let's just get on with it. So I, I feel like it, this whole, that whole sequence to me needed to be restructured and condensed is, is my biggest issue with it. Okay. Chad, vent. Now I'm just going to pull out my popcorn. <laughs> okay, so the moment things really start going wrong for me uh, in a film where I have shed many tears at up to this point uh, is when Harry drops from Hagrid's arms in front of everybody, sends a curse at Nagini, and then runs off, and <laughs> there's this like Scooby-Doo chase sequence through Hogwarts. And that I've already said I am not a book purist. I am perfectly fine with this being supplemental to this book series. And if you want the full picture to go pick up some books and do some reading. But when it comes to this final duel, the way it happens in the book is so important to Voldemort's defeat and the meaning in Voldemort's defeat. And in what we get, we just don't get that. Instead, it turns into Hollywood hijinks and flying around and faces melting together. And all of a sudden, Voldemort has weird robe tentacles that are choking Harry. <laughs> I don't Harry. like robe tentacles and, at all. <laughs> <laughs> and Bellatrix turns into confetti. And then Voldemort turns into, into confetti, which completely defeats the purpose of him being just a mortal now. Just mm. a mortal now. And it's just, it, it's too... It's too cartoony. I think they felt like they needed this big showstopper moment and they got to fly around and then they got to meet in the courtyard separate from everybody and do priori and cantatum one more time because we haven't already seen it a dozen times in this movie or in other movies. And it it's supposed to be about how Voldemort was outwitted. Voldemort lost not because he was more powerful, but because he didn't pay attention to the details. And you know what? You're not Voldemort. You're Tom Riddle. And I'm going to humiliate you in front of all these people and make you make it make it a point that you are just a man. And when you die, you're just going to be a husk. You're going to be this thing that is left over. You're going to be a carcass. You're going to be a shell. And we're going to put you in another room by yourself because you don't even deserve to be. No, among he's going to disintegrate and flow off into the wind, actually. Yeah. And instead, he's going to be confetti. And now I everybody else is like, oh, so Harry, much. you killed him. Are you sure? It, it it's there's just so many things that it, it the 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 conf confrontation in the book was about harry saying you're tom riddle i you you're not worthy of your name voldemort you're tom riddle and you're a person because i made you a person because my friends and i we killed all of your pads to immortality and for that to just be yay confetti <laughs> it just really bothers me it, it completely kills what would probably be a five-star movie for me otherwise. Yeah, it's 
it, it, it's a series of mistakes that the film makes. Like, as I told that, that that long action sequence isn't very good. It's 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 just weird. Like the things that are happening are strange. Like the the epic confrontation between Molly and Bellatrix. Like even that doesn't fully yeah, work for I me in the like, film. Why mm-hmm. does that scene not work? Because it happens both the first time and this second viewing. It happens and it ends, and I'm like, I I didn't feel anything there. I think it was it was meant to be more intense. Like it should have been more intense, and there should have been like yelling, like Molly like flings herself in front of Jenny and not my daughter. And it, it's more more intense. And then again, Bellatrix doesn't turn into confetti either. Yeah. Really I think it's great. also like flatly directed. Like it's like here's here's the a shot. Here's the like here's the way. Here's the angle whenever we're looking at Molly in this fight. Here's the angle when we're looking at Bellatrix. Like he's it's just a very static scene and a very visually uninteresting fight yeah so it just kind of goes and like none of the beats and then you have the weird where they're flying around the castle like what, what is this i i will credit where it's due the visual of harry and voldemort in the courtyard dueling against each other is incredible are they like rightfully iconic with the, the red and the green against each other and i don't even mind that they use i think the, the visual of the red pushing the green back into Voldemort's wand. I think it's, it's a very difficult idea of like deflecting the spell back into Voldemort. I think that it's, mm-hmm. a, it's getting that idea across pretty well. Like, I think I don't even mind them using that, but I think a big problem is that they separate the two from the rest of the battle and the, from everybody else. This is a thing that, um, that action films will do a lot is like they'll have a battle and then they'll kind of go off to the side and where the the main good guy the main the villain they'll have their confrontation alone and i don't like it they, they did this in the um the hobbit films uh for uh, thorin and uh, azog's final confrontation i i don't i don't get it like I, I like you can do this kind of confrontation within the battle like think of like uh the patriot um another film starring jason isaac jason isaacs where like you can have that epic confrontation in the middle of a, a, a larger battle, um, and I think it just it's it's more emotionally satisfying for me on that front. But I think, as you said, like he, he he's humiliating Voldemort. Like this this needs to happen in front of everybody. Everybody needs to see this man die for a thematic reason, and, mm-hmm. and you know he's calling him Tom. And uh, another th- another beat that I really missed from the book is that he he offers mercy and redemption to Voldemort before before he finally kills him or kills himself like there's a lot of things a lot of thematic things happening there that are all absent when they're just kind of off fighting on their own and not not speaking but and then, then as I said, the final thing where he disintegrates again the point is in the, in the end he is just a man i'm going to read the quote from the book where it's, tom hiddle hit the floor with a mundane finality his body feeble and shrunken the white hands empty the snake-like face vacant and unknowing, Voldemort was dead. Like, he should flop to the ground like a gutted fish and just lay there as the man that he is, just one more corpse among a you know, bunch of corpses. And having giving him this huge dramatic death where he disintegrates and fl- floats away in the wind, it makes him more than he is. And it, it's... Like, it, it, it's it's not just a symbol of the book did this. I, I think it's an important thematic point to what the film is, what the story is supposed to be saying that is just kind of, is entirely missed. And for me that, that final duel and all the various thematic elements happening are so powerful where here it's like, it happened. 
And then right after that, I'm going to read a short passage as well, (laughs) because I have the book in front of me for this reason. Um, One shivering second of silence, the shock of the moment suspended, and then the tumult broke around Harry as the screams and the cheers and the roars of the watchers rent the air. We don't get that. Mm -hmm. There's no cathartic moment of relief, of release. Instead, they have this I, I keep bringing the confetti. The confetti is the least of my concerns about, well, it's not the least. It's not my main concern about this whole sequence, but everybody's supposed to witness it and see the the nightmare is over. And this is a nightmare that has been going for 40, 30, 40 years. It's been, it's been a long time where, where that Voldemort has been wreaking havoc and terrorizing people. And for people to witness it and to watch him slump on the ground, there's no more life. There's no spirits or wisps of anything remaining. Um, and for everybody to, to be able to, to cheer and to cry and to hug each other and to celebrate, there's none of that. And, and to in have the a moments feast. When, yeah. To have a feast. And in the moments where uh, Voldemort's gone and Harry's by himself and we get the admittedly beautiful Lily's theme playing for the final time uh, as Voldemort's gone, but then Harry's just sort of like awkwardly walking through the great hall and you hear little snippets of conversation. Oh, hello. Good to see you. Yay. We did it. And then this really awkward hug between Harry and Hagrid that I think is supposed to be touching, but it doesn't really affect me the way it should in that moment because there, there's just no, there's no celebration. And I wish we had that celebration. I have in my notes written down all caps. Why is there no rejoicing? Um, right. <laughs> yeah, it's that is strange. Like the walk through the hall where people are kind of, you know, getting bandaged up and kind of sitting around and stunned, like that could be played after a defeat and it wouldn't feel mm-hmm. out of place. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's those two things on top of each other, you know, kind of botching the final duel and then missing the just raucous celebration that happens after they win. It just this this finale is not giving me the emotions that I think we've had. We've you know we've been get, building up eight films to get here. This is the final victory that everything has been building towards, and it does not. It's just so quiet, so drab, just so underplayed. It just there's it's not. It doesn't feel like a climax. I agree. It it, it really. I mean, it clearly bothers me, <laughs> <laughs> but. I mean, it, it, it's, it is what it is, I guess. I, I don't know, James, do you have anything else to add to those complaints at all? Well, I mean, I definitely agree with most of what y'all are saying. Like, I mean, I don't like him disintegrating. I like the idea of, I mean, what's, there's no like payoff for Harry's refusal to not say his name. It feels like, it feels like the series is stripping the layers back more and more of Voldemort. Like, making a person out of him as it goes on he's like he's this cloak and people are afraid to say his name and like whenever the story first starts and now harry will say voldemort um and other people won't and then all of a sudden we find out oh he's he was a kid and his name was tom riddle and then we get the backstory like it's just more and more humanizing him and so i think what they could have done is like you know had they let that duel take place in front of everybody have his, his body falls down and then let the camera pan out until you lose track of which body is his among everybody's like it's just he falls in a pile of corpses and by the time we finish the shot he's just one of like many and we don't even know where he is um 
the and, and I also I really like that idea of to me there's something really satisfying to me about humiliating evil in front of the world like uh I, I love the moment in the last jedi <laughs> like luke ever or, yeah what luke does there is like he just makes kylo look like an idiot in front of his own army you know you fought a freaking uh projection good on you <laughs> like it's just this embarrassing <laughs> evil people in front of other people is like so satisfying and so for for him to have lost to harry you know the kid he couldn't kill him as a baby and he dies at his by his hand now like in front of everybody that'd be way way more satisfying the the one scene though that i do like um is i do like the walk to the great hall um but i i really like those kinds of endings because they feel real like i'm picturing myself you know if i if i was in this am i cheering the second volumor dies absolutely but if i lost a sibling that it's it's like winning the battle didn't bring back a loved one um and it seems like everybody there lost somebody so to me like the 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 warmth of victory for me would wear off very thin and i'm right back like just at at a corpse or with a friend and just sitting in silence like it a moment that i love in the hobbit though is is after you know thorin's dead and everything and then gandalf comes and sits by bilbo and like that scene is like two minutes of them sitting in silence and gandalf awkwardly like fidgeting with his pipe and it's like what do you do you know like there's so much death around us what do you Uh, that's why i love that that second scene with um Harry, you and Hermione out on the bridge, just kind of living in what just happened, and kind of just standing there, like we're gonna we're gonna soak this piece in. Like I think I think that that balance is important. We have the jubilation, and then we have the quiet moments where they kind of reckon with what happened. But I think you need both, and not, and he and Yates really overloads I, I, on the contemplation. I think what would have worked is if you know if he died in front of everybody, you could have that immediate in the moment cheer. But I think what I do like about the the Great Hall scene is I, I don't always like whenever movies separate the protagonists from everybody else in the in the finale and like we'll let them go be mature and reflective over there and everybody else over here is just like it's like person raising their arms in celebration number five um, like I a, a touch that I really like in that scene is you you're hearing like just bits of mundane conversation like you're you're hearing like oh no like oh did you get here there but like it's just like faint words here and there like it really i don't know there's a there's a level of reality to that to me where like everybody and i, I think that would have worked better if we did let everybody just let out a sh- just this you know ear splitting shouts at the death of Voldemort and then go back in and be like oh like my sister died, you know, my brother died, my mom that like just all of this, um, because to me, when you separate the protagonist and like, that's everything, it, it's acting like the protagonists are the only people who really lost anything. And they're going to go off and reflect about that. But the truth is like, this was Hogwarts last stand. And just as they won the day, they'll mourn the day and will sit in the aftermath of this horrible thing uh and so i don't know there's just there's something i love about like the quiet awkwardness of like what do we 
what do we do? Because it's not like everybody's weeping either. There, it's just they're sitting around. It's like what? Are, <laughs> so many mixed emotions. How do we? How do we process this thing that just happened? Uh, so I, but again, like I, I definitely understand what you're saying. Where it's like it's so emphasizing that that you lose the celebration. So I think I think what I would have done at least is instead of cutting that moment of like letting everybody just kind of sit there, like what do we do? Just let them celebrate before you put that scene in. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess like I'm thinking like VE Day or something. The pictures we see of you know the, the end of either World War or just yeah, everyone there they've all they either lost a family member, they know someone who's died. Like, but the, the war is over, and they, they it, that's what this is. Like, this is as as um as was said, this is something that's plagued the Wizarding World for generations. Yeah, I get. And, it is over. Yeah. It's it's you know like with, with the images that we have of B Day, it's, it's like they're they're in their like they're they're still both in time and to some extent physical distance. Like there's some separation, but it would I don't know. It's just it'd be a weird image of in my head of like the Weasleys cheering. You're like, dude, twenty feet behind you, Fred's body is lying there, <laughs> like. I'm imagining Neville kissing Luna, like in that famous V Day, uh, v. Day uh, yeah. picture. <laughs> See, like if we um, want to have like ahead. a quick, like moments like that in the immediate, but again, it's just like you're surrounded by your the the dead bodies of your friends. You know how long can celebration truly last? Yeah, I get that, but I want rejoicing. I want to be happy. <laughs> <laughs> I do have one one final complaint about this this final confrontation and that's that they split up the explanation for why harry won and it it so the first half is before he flings voldemort off the tower or whatever and they go flying around he's like what what if the one never belonged to snape what if it, it its allegiance was to somebody else and he just plants that seed of doubt in his mind i guess and then the explanation is not given until that moment on the bridge when he's with Ron and Hermione. And Hermione's like, why didn't the wand work for him? And Harry's like, well, because it, Malfoy's the one who disarmed Dumbledore and I disarmed Malfoy. So ta-da, it's mine. Yay. Um, whereas in the book, again, uh, book purist only in this one instance, uh, Harry gives that whole speech as he and Voldemort are circling each other in the Great Hall while everybody watches and he's like, he he gives the whole story then, he gives the whole explanation then. And then it's like, you can believe me or not, Tom, but if you want to fire off your spell, we'll see who af- who after this is alive and who is dead. And uh, I-, I wish that we had gotten all of that in that one fell swoop. I don't know about y'all, but I'm not entirely in love. I, I love so many of the kind of lore retcons that uh, Rowling weaves in throughout the series. But the wand lore stuff she adds in Deathly Hallows doesn't entirely work for me. Like, I, I just, I don't buy that every time someone gets disarmed, a wand's loyalty shifts. Like, cause those people are getting disarmed a lot. And, like, it, it, it feels like it's just reaching a bit far. Um, oh, I agree. I mean, for sure. That, that If you think about it in that way, it definitely does fall apart really, really quickly because you've got dueling club and chamber secrets <laughs> where that's like the very first thing everybody's doing is Expelliarmus. It's the first thing they do in Dumbledore's army is Expelliarmus all over the place. And so it, it doesn't work if you think of it in that those broad strokes. But I think, well, in those specific instances, but in broad strokes, I think if you think these, these big moments with these powerful ones and these big figures, um, and we're talking life and death and good and evil, 
then it does work for me. Yeah, I. As long as you don't think of it in the small moments. Yeah, I, I like <laughs> it, but I would like it a lot more if it feels like the rules are played very fast and loose with, like, like in at the end of Deathly Hallows Part One, like he, he wrestled the wand out of his hand and it's like, ha it's mine now. Cause I like, <laughs> I, I pulled it out of your hand the way like a kid pulls a pencil out of another kid's hand, at, like in class or something. And so it's like, what, what okay. Yeah, like what, do, what do we mean by like, it's shifting because to me, it's like, if if it was much more committed to like you either you killed the person or this was a duel to the death like or not a duel to the death but like this was a duel to decide this was a genuine not just classroom stuff not like well where it's just like there's a battlefield everywhere we're like but it's like this was a clear decisive victory the other person might not be dead but it was a full fledged duel and it ended with me taking their wand in victory like if it, if it was more like that but it's it feels like there are too many opportunities where like well technically now that's mine because this thing and that thing and both. I'm like uh okay <laughs> that's convenient um <laughs> it's kind of my issue um i don't want to make this too long but it, it's it's kind of a continuing issue from deathly hallows part one where like these two movies have like they're suffering the compounding lore that hasn't been explained over the course of the series. Although I think the, the whole one thing is, is in the final book as well. Um, but like, I, I was thinking, you know, like think back to like chamber of secrets where it's like, we've got, we've got a riddle. There's a chamber. There's like, it's just like, it's, this is the thing. And each mood, like each story just kind of progressively adds a little bit of lore and now at the end, we're like, we've got the Deathly Hallows. So we've got these three things and they do all of this. And now you got the idea of, of wand switching and you've got this mirror. Like, it's just the compounding like rules and lore and new magical items and new histories. It's just, it becomes, and, and that's not too, like, it's not even getting to horcruxes. And so I don't know, just, I'll, I'll give my last complaint about the movie out of the way here. Um, I don't think either part one or part two, or sorry, I don't think that the series in general like really handles Horcruxes super well in the films. Like we're told what they are, but it doesn't it doesn't attach any real significance to any any one of the Horcruxes. You know, it's like we. We don't really know much about the locket and like Regulus is tied up in the locket and that whole story, but it's only because he's in the book. So we have to do that. And we don't really know what this cup is. And I, I don't remember if I missed something, but like when we get to Hogwarts and they're like, what is it? It's like, I don't know. I think it has something to do with Ravenclaw. Do we, do we as an audience know why he knows it has something to do with Ravenclaw, like divorce from the books or does in the movie, he just says, I think it has something to do with Ravenclaw. And as an audience, we're supposed to be like, I, he got the flashes and we saw um kelly mcdonald's yeah yeah it just feels like it's 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 these different items and it's like i don't really know anything about any of these things but we're 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 going to kill them and even the the deathly hallows themselves by the end of the movie feel like super like 
I don't know. They're by like they're in the book, so we have to we have to have them here. Like what the reveal of the resurrection stone and him letting it fall to the ground. I'm like, what? This is this feels very extraneous. And it's the title of the movie. And it's like, I don't know. So I, I just all that to say, like with all of these horcruxes and these new three items and everything going on with all of the lore, it feels like a lot of it is included because it's in the books. And at the end of the day, I'm like this. I mean, not obviously horcruxes had to be in this, but all right, it just it feels like it's so much and nothing's getting explained to the extent it needs to get explained. And we're just we're moving from all of these items with all of this history. And it just it feels like it's a lot and it doesn't amount to quite as much as it should. Yeah, I don't disagree there. There's definitely a lot of a lot of kind of hand waving happening. I, it doesn't bother me so much for the Horcruxes, but I think overall the, the weight of that stuff definitely adds up. Well, yeah, especially because the weight of the Hallows came from the context with the Dumbledores in Rita Skeeter's book that we didn't get as much of in the films. Yeah. Um, and the whole the whole choice in Deathly Hallows for Harry was he had to choose at some point to go either after the Horcruxes or after the Hallows. And he doesn't really have that choice in oh, the films. Yeah. It's just like, well, we've got the got to get the Horcruxes. And I guess it, it it is never made clear in the films that Harry owns one of the Deathly Hallows already. Like the invisibility cloak yeah. is a Deathly Hallow. Uh, the only the only hint that it is is when they're at Xenophilius they have that look. Uh, place in part one, and he says the cloak of invisibility, and they all look at each other like you have a cloak <gasps> of invisibility. <laughs> and when, it's like it doesn't really so, yeah, mean what, anything unless you're a reader and you you can interpret yeah, what, it correctly. But otherwise, it's just like oh wow. What cool. is y'all's opinions of like the just the Deathly Hallows as objects in this film? Like and and how they how they're used and if they mean too much within the plot. Um, it's kind of like the Half Blood Prince with the movie, where sure it's the title, but it's also matter. It has less importance in the way the film is chosen to tell the story, so I don't mind all that much. Like if it wasn't the title, would I care all that much? Like the the, the most the, the, they give primary focus to the Elder Wand, and I think that's done okay. Well, they basically only give focus to the elder one like well the, the resurrection stone gets a great scene um but yeah i, I honestly don't I, I it's it's not all that central to the story of the film so it doesn't bother me as much i guess with the way they went it almost would have been worse had they really made it a dilemma like do i go horcruxes or hallows because at the end the hallows don't really get much weight even in this film and so if that was like a wait a second he was kind of torn up about which way to go and now it doesn't it doesn't really mean too much within the film at the end all right um so finally we have to talk about the epilogue um and i also have no negative things to say about this so i'll let you go first um well i'll start off just because i don't really have a lot of a, a ton of negative things to say i mean really for me i don't care for the epilogue much in the book either okay. like I, that, I that, it's pretty ex- that's something that shocked extraneous. that's something that kind of shocked me like i adored this scene but then i like heard like some fans don't like it like kind of it kind of was like what what's wrong with you people <laughs> i mean i think it's fine i i think it would also be completely fine without the epilogue like i think if you just had that moment of them on the bridge and you played leaving hogwarts there 
as they're like basking in the the afterglow of the defeat of Voldemort, that would have been a perfectly fine ending. Mm. Um, like even the book, I think that would have been fine. But uh, because we have the epilogue in the book, we have the epilogue in the film. And I think as far as it goes, I mean, it, it matches the book and it's fine. Um, would most of your complaints be from the look of the aged up characters like is that no. most of y'all's issue um, it, well, it has to do with off, visuals but it's not for me at least it's not the characters first off I'm a Lord <laughs> of the Rings fan so more endings the better uh, <laughs> secondly yeah like, like this is more again kind of a complaint with Yates is that he shoots this final scene exactly like he shot the okay, rest of his yes. films so, so we have the same yep. issue where it's this kind of the same cold blues and grays the cinematography is very static the, the characters' performances are very subdued. They kind of stand still, stand around still a lot. Like, and it's it, like this. We're th- this should feel like we're back in Sorcerer's Stone. Yes, yes. This is the the cycle is starting again. Like the world is back as it should be. The next generation is going to Hogwarts. It should be warm. It should be just delightful. People, kids running around screaming. Like everyone's happy and just all smiles blaring Hedwig's theme and just colorful and like and it's like they could they could be like parents sending their kids off you know to avoid you know the the London Blitz or something by the way the tone of the way it's shot what I put in my notes is this train station looks like a post Blitz London train like it's it's so gray it's so empty it's so quiet like nobody like it's everybody's quietly shuffling around and it's the, the red of the Hogwarts express like is so washed out. It's like, like, no, we need this bright, beautiful red. Like we need effort, like kids running around, like bustling with owls everywhere. Like parents trying to keep up and like every, everything's exciting. Like it was in Sorcerer's Stone. It's like, these kids are seeing it the way Harry saw it. Like this should be exciting. And, and it's it's we're doing this again. The next generation is here, and yet, like the walls and the floor is just like the most indiscreet concrete gray, and the paint of the train is so dull and washed out. And hair, like everybody, everybody's just kind of talking like this, like oh, it's gonna be a-. even the kid is just like, you know, what if I get put in it? Like oh well, I was put there. I'm like no, <laughs> none of this is. It's why are we so somber? Like. And and they're doing the whole, you know, I'm like, no, what's, uh, none of this is matching. Yeah, that, <laughs> and that, that is my, pretty much my exact thoughts. Like it, 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 it kind of adds on like the duel. I didn't like, I didn't like the aftermath of the duel and now the, 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 uh, the epilogue, like three scenes that I adore from the book all at the end of this film. That's mainly what brings the kind of the whole film down for me is it, it's just, a series of miscalculations kind of stacked up on top of each other. For me, like the book ends on such a high note and the film kind of feels like it ends with a sigh. Um, like, yep, that was a movie. <laughs> and like visually in the performances and the editing, all of that is that like, it is kind of a, like there's something quiet and bittersweet like it feels like it's going in in almost all aspects of the filmmaking it's going for like this kind of bittersweet aftermath feel except the music is like punching up that sorcerer's stone score like it, it is 
is like, we remember we were all here. This is how it started. Like the music is just so happy and excited to start again, but it, it feels out of step with all of the other aspects of the filmmaking. All right. So let's move into talking about the score. Um, Chad, what, uh, anything in particular, any uh, tracks in particular or themes that you wanted to mention? Well, I will say that uh, the joint Alexander Desplat scores for these final two films are probably my second most listened to after uh, John Williams' original Sorcerer's Stone score. Um, I really loved Desplat's music here. Um, I wish there was a little bit more continuity between themes he introduced in part one and bringing them into part two. I think there's really only one theme that goes across and it's the theme that they, that he uses for Neville in this film, which I think was the the theme that he used for when everybody showed up at Privet Drive in the first film. Um, if I'm remembering correctly, uh, that's the only theme that really continues across. Whereas I think there would have been a lot of opportunities for his obliviate theme that opens part one to be used in part two. That aside, uh, I really like a lot of tracks on this album for part two. Uh, Lily's theme is fantastic and we get it throughout the film. They really focus on Lily just as a character and the the people um, who love her. Uh, so the very first time we hear it, it's as we see Snape looking over the Hogwarts grounds at the very beginning of the film. And so it's very meaningful in retrospect, knowing his relation to Lily. There's a really grand version that plays as they escape Gringotts. Um, as Snape dies and says, you have your mother's eyes. Of course, we get Lily scene there, the resurrection scene, resurrection stone scene. um, And then as Voldemort disintegrates, we hear it one last time um, as confetti scatters everywhere. And it's, it's a, it's a really beautiful theme. I I really like Lily's theme. Yeah. It's that that like nice solo uh, soprano. It's really, really beautiful. Um, there's this motif for I, I thought it was going to be for the whole hor- for all of the Horcruxes, but really it's just for uh, the the Helga Hufflepuff's cup in uh, in what's her name Bellatrix's in Bellatrix's vault. Um, it's very reminiscent of Shore's theme for the One Ring. Mm. Uh, I really like it. It's really cool. Um, and then a couple of standout tracks. I really like the Grey Lady track. Um, there's this moment when Harry has gotten confirmation that the diadem is in the re- is in the room of requirement, and he runs off, and the strings kick in. That I've always really, really loved. I also like Courtyard Apocalypse uh, and Statues as standout tracks. Yeah, yeah, the Statues was one I really noted. Um, Dragon Flight again. It's a flight theme, so I like it. Uh- <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like battlefield and, court- and I mentioned the green gods mine card yeah. track as well that's very good. Only, yeah the yeah, battlefield and courtyard apocalypse kind of go together really well uh the procession mm-hmm. um kind of like it's like lily's theme as like a funeral dirge so one more thing i wanted to mention about the music that it is a really interesting choice because it's not happened in any of the other harry potter films is that they they just bring back they needle drop john williams music it's they just bring it out of nowhere. So like the very first time we hear it is when Harry comes out of the portrait uh, after he arrives at Hogwarts and everybody's waiting in the room and there's Harry's wondrous world right there. Uh, there's just a little bit of Harry's wondrous world. And then when McGonagall stands off Snape and the lights lift and everybody's cheering because Snape's gone and Harry's there, they play that same theme. And then in the epilogue, 
that's leaving Hogwarts that we've heard in the that we heard in the first two films. And it's very well used. I mean, it does most of the emotional heavy lifting in that scene. Mm-hmm. Um, I really like its use there. It really makes me emotional there because of John Williams. But I, I just think it's a really interesting choice that after a film absent of Hogwarts, um, largely absent of Hogwarts, I guess I should say, uh, when we finally get back to Hogwarts, it's like like what you were saying earlier, we're back to year one. And here is some of the magic returning to the world as there's hope. I, mean, I, think, I think that's a good thing. I think I wish the entire series had been doing that, you know, referencing more themes throughout. Absolutely. But again, it's not even referencing. Like this isn't material that's on the soundtrack. It's, they, it's like, okay, let me dust off my Sorcerer's Stone <laughs> album release. And okay, yeah, that's going to fit really nicely there. It's not, I don't think it's an arrangement. I'm pretty sure they just like, okay, let's, let's dig out the old records and put it in. Yeah, it's not on the Alexander Desplat score release. Okay, interesting. Yeah. All right, so moving into our star rating and ranking for the series, uh, let's start with you, Chad. Um, what do you give this film out of five stars, and how do you rank uh, the seven films? And and while we're at it, why don't you give, throw in all uh, the two Fantastic Beast films if you have a place for them? Oh goodness, I, I hadn't thought about where to fit oh. those in. Um, <laughs> Just because it's the last so, time we'll be I mean, hearing I, from you for the series. So. Okay. Um, well, I'll, I'll talk about the Harry Potter series first. So I think that my top two places could be a toss up just depending on the day between Half-Blood Prince and Prisoner of Azkaban. Uh, I think both of those are really outstanding films. I actually went back and watched Half-Blood Prince and Deathly Hallows Part 1 in anticipation of talking about Part 2 tonight, just since we talked about uh, uh, Order of the Phoenix last time I was on. So I wanted to get that that ramp up with all of Yates films. Um, And yeah, Half-Blood Brince is still just really, really great. And so toss up between those for the top two. Sorcerer's Stone, I think, for more of the nostalgia than anything else um, uh, is number three. And then I struggled with where to put Deathly Hallows Part Two. I was going to put Order of the Phoenix as fourth place. um, But despite my issues with this movie, it makes me cry a lot. <laughs> it, it makes me emotional. And because of how much this movie makes me feel, I felt I had to give it some bonus rank points at least. And so I've got Deathly Hallows Part 2 as number four. And for the same reasons, honestly, uh, like Edwig's death, Dobby's death, really big moments for me. Um, I put Deathly Hallows Part 1 as number five. And then I've got Order of the Phoenix as six, Chamber of Secrets seven, and then Goblet of Fire in the last <laughs> Um, and as far as the star rating for this one, I I'm thinking maybe somewhere in the three and a half to four star range, um, probably four, uh, as vocal as I am about its mistakes, the, the highs are really, really high. Um, and then just thinking about the fantastic beast films, I've only seen crimes of Grindelwald once. And so I don't think I could honestly really rank that. Um, but part one, uh, the, the very first fantastic beast films, I actually really like, and I think I would probably put it after Deathly Hallows Part One, like maybe right above Order of the Phoenix for me. And uh, you, James? Yeah. So uh, I have number one uh, as Prisoner of Azkaban, number two as Half Blood Prince, and number three as The Deathly Hallows Part One. And like those are the, the three that I just, I am just like head over heels in love with as films. Um, and then at number four, so I have uh, Chamber of Secrets as number four. I still, like, it's just, it 
outside of being a tad long to me, I, I love the Halloween mystery vibes of that movie. Um, and then I have uh, Order of the Phoenix at number five and Deathly Hallows Part Two as number six. And I, I really went back and forth with uh, Deathly Hallows Part Two and Order of the Phoenix. And I think the reason I gave the edge to Order of the Phoenix is it feels like it has, because it's not, I, I don't know. I, I think I just, I responded to the emotion of it, all the character interaction, the energy of that film. I just responded to that more than like the very, very, it's a big final battle heavy aspect of part two. Um, so I ended up leaning towards Order of the Phoenix uh, and then Sorcerer's Stone number seven and Goblet of Fire number eight. Uh, and as for a star rating, I, I was similar to Chad. I was going back and forth between three and a half and four. And I think I'm after this viewing, I may do three and a half. But I, a lot of the time, what's weird is with recording because there's pausing and note taking and stuff. You all like there's a sense of like removing myself from the emotion of the film. And then whenever I rewatch something that I recorded over and I just watch through, I'm like, ah, oh, this is a, in a weird way, this is a better experience, despite the fact that I like, I wasn't writing down everything. Um, and so it could go up to a four after a rewatch, but, but that's where it stands now. All right. Yeah. So I give it three and a half stars out of five. It's, it's weird. Cause like most of the individual scenes I really like, as I mentioned, like, I think the, like, like beat for beat adaptation of moments from the book is like, some really solid there's just a lot of great scenes it's just the, the filmmaking for the most part is you know up to the level it needs to be it's just a couple er, you know, irritations with pacing and then those three major sequences at the end kind of stacking up for me and bringing it down so it just it just doesn't do for me what i really want from you know the climax of a series i think over it it, it ends the series well enough just from a kind of thematic like it doesn't break anything. Like it's not like where like, like a rise of Skywalker's thing where like it, something is like a, a fundamental thing about the series is broken. It does what it needs to do. Does it okay and pretty well for the most part, except for those scenes that I mentioned. So it's three and a half. Uh, my ranking is actually actually identical to James. So number one, Prisoner of Azkaban. Number two, The Half Blood Prince. Three, Deathly Hallows Part One. Four, Chamber of Secrets. Five, Order of the Phoenix. Six, Deathly Hallows Part Two. Seven, Sorcerer's Stone. And eight, Goblet of Fire. Wow, and my, no coordination. My, Weird. <laughs> yeah, my ranking has actually shifted the most. Uh, I think of any series we've covered on the podcast. Um, like Half Blood Prince has r rose up two slots, and uh, Order of the Phoenix and Deathly Hallows uh, Part Two flipped, which isn't a lot, but usually my, my rankings stay pretty static throughout uh, rewatches. So, uh, to to clarify something on mine, just real quick, uh, out of the eight films, seven of them are honestly pretty close as far as like ranking goes and like enjoyment. Um, so even though I have Chamber of Secrets a lot lower than either of you do, I still love that movie a lot. Uh, the only one on this list that I would say, yeah, I don't, I don't love that movie is probably Goblet of Fire. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah. I just wanted to so, clarify that uh, because even though seven seems really low when you're thinking set up seven out of eight chamber of secrets is near half blood Prince as number one. It's just like, I, I really like these movies and I do want to, I want to mention two quick things before we wrap um, one. I just a quick thing did what, what's y'all's thought on Harry snapping the elder wand at the very end. We didn't say anything about I it. I like it. You like it? Yeah. Well, okay. I don't mind it. 
but I mean, Harry has a broken wand ha somewhere, and in the book he repairs <laughs> his wand. <laughs> he just keeps Dracos. <laughs> I do. I do wish that would have been cool if he repaired his wand. But like in the book, like we hear that like he literally died with it, and you can't show that on film. So I think snappy ending you ending the cycle was a pretty effective way. But yeah, <laughs> the issue of not having a wand is kind of funny. I mean, Ollivander's still around. He can make him a new one. Yeah. Okay. So I just wanted to mention that because I thought it was a, a funny discussion thing. But I just wanted the other thing I wanted to mention is that it's really interesting for me listening to you guys talk about the books and the films because I started reading this series in 1998 <laughs> and so I I saw Sorcerer's Stone in the theaters in 2001 and I I grew up with Harry Potter and so I'm not saying that makes my opinion correct and your opinion wrong I I just think it's really interesting hearing how you rank the films because like for me like I said I, I have Sorcerer's Stone as number three and that's like not really in question in my mind. I love Sorcerer's Stone. And I, it's because I, I saw it when I was nine years old in the theater and it was based off my favorite book series that I'd read since second grade. Um, so I just wanted to say that I, it's really interesting. I, I really like hearing that different perspective as, from people who came to Harry Potter later in life and didn't grow up, quote unquote, grow up with the series in the same way I did. Yeah, that is interesting. Like, I, I consider myself an uber fan. I've read the series mm -hmm. like at least five times. And like, I, it's one of my favorite seasons of all times, mm -hmm. but I didn't come to it till I was like 20 years old. Yeah. yeah. So I've been very much outside the, the fandom, even despite considering myself a major fan. It is interesting. Yeah. And hello again from future Gabe. I'm going to run through the box office numbers real quick. So domestically it earned 381 million and in the foreign markets, it earned 960 million for a worldwide total of 1 billion, 343 million on its uh 250 million dollars shared budget with uh with deathly Hallows part one uh together the film has made over two billion the deathly house part two is the highest grossing film in the series both domestically and worldwide it also set the record for the highest grossing opening domestic weekend of all time taking the title from 2008's the dark knight but it would lose it the very next year to the avengers that record was recently reset by Avengers Endgame, and that beat its closest competition, uh, Infinity War, by over $100 million. So we're not going to see uh, that record broken again for quite a long time. And when it is finally broken, it'll probably be, be due to inflation rather than actually more people going to see the movie. It's the highest grossing film of 2011, both domestically and worldwide. And on its release, it was the second highest grossing film of all time after Titanic, not adjusting for inflation. Uh, but now it's the 13th. And as far as the critical reception, it met with a complete critical acclaim on its release. It holds a 96% on Rotten Tomatoes and, and an 85 on Metacritic. It also beats out all the other Harry Potter films on most audience ranking sites. The only other film that's consistently near uh Deathly Hallows ratings is Prisoner of Azkaban, but on the whole, it's much it but on the whole, it even beats that. This was a very beloved film. It was nominated for three Oscars, but it didn't win any of them. There was Best Makeup, which it lost to the Iron Lady, and then Best Best Visual Effects and Art Direction, with which both went uh, to Hugo. And that brought the total of Oscar nominations for the series to 12. Although the first Fantastic Beast films also got a couple more. But sadly, the series did not win any Oscars. I think it really deserved at least a score or production design statue at some point. It does seem a bit ridiculous that it didn't get either of those. 
And I, I do want to briefly talk about this film's kind of popular legacy um, outside of our particular opinions. Um, from from my perspective, I think it. it I, I remember in 2011 when it came out, it seemed to be universally beloved. And honestly, it still seems to be to this day, just like looking through like letterbox rankings and kind of reviews. I, I don't know a lot of people that share, share, you know, my criticisms with it. Um, is, is that your perspective as well, Chad? Yeah. I, I don't think I know many people who are as vocal about disliking the ending as like you and I are. Um, even if you look at critic rankings on Rotten Tomatoes, I think it's got somewhere in the mm. 90s score. And part of that you could say is, well, this is the ending. And so it's it's got like, I don't know. I, I, yeah, Goblet of Fire is in the 80s yeah. <laughs> too, though. So those guys are smoking something. <laughs> no, I, I, this one did get genuine acclaim. Yeah. Like, yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I like I said, I really liked it. And I, I think that other people that I've listened to really like it. I listen to a Harry Potter podcast every week still. And um, I don't recall them having super negative reactions to the ending, but uh, yeah, maybe it's just a, a niche thing. It's like, if you're a super fan of the books or if you're not, what's your thoughts on that, James? Yeah. I mean, I've kind of seen the same thing. Like they're with a prisoner of Azkaban, like you're kind of expected to love that. <laughs> like nobody's, nobody's going to be like, Oh, you love that one. Like it's, I think the way we talked about it, like it's one of a handful. It's, it's like, you got that, and T2 and Fury Road. Like it's one of a handful of these big populist blockbusters that have entered the pantheon of like this, these are great films. Um, that hasn't like, it's, I, would, I wouldn't say that's the case with Deathly Hallows Part Two, but you know, if you're expected to adore uh, Azkaban, you're absolutely allowed to adore Deathly Hallows Part Two. Like, I don't like nobody's really like, oh, wow, you really love that one, huh? Like it's it's considered pretty great for most people. Like all the all the letterbox reviews I went through, like it was pretty consistent thing to be like, wow, like one of the one of the best finales to any of these, you know, long running series. It's, it's just it's it feels genuinely respected regardless of the film circle, um, which doesn't happen a whole 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 lot with series like this yeah and i think it's widely regarded as one of the great kind of series climaxes yeah um like when endgame came out people were kind of like looking back to i think deathly house part two as like the previous uh you know big all you know, very satisfying climax to a franchise i wish i wish i could i wish i could feel that too uh, but yeah, as far as you know, outside of us, I think it, it's it's its legacy is seems pretty secure. All right, well, thanks for coming on, uh, Chad. This, as always, this was a lot of fun. Um, uh, where where can people find you online if they, uh, any of the shows you're up to and all that? Uh, well, if you would just like to follow me on Twitter, I'm at Chadadada. That is C H A D A D A D A, and I do host my own score of podcasts. <laughs> I have the Cinescope podcast, which is the most. Uh, relatedly adjacent to this one. It's about the movies we love and why we love them. And uh, it you can find that on Twitter at Cinescope Pod or the CinescopePodcast.com or wherever podcasts can be found. And I'll just mention my other two since they're not movie related, but I have two TV related podcasts. One is called Crossroads of Destiny, which is all about Avatar The Last Airbender and its accompanying universe. And the other one is all about the US version of The Office and it is called An American Workplace. And that's it. Thank you guys for having me on. 
All right, so next episode, we'll be moving into the Fantastic Beasts series with Fantastic Beasts and where to find them. And surprise, surprise, I also really enjoy these films. I really can't wait to discuss these films. So until next time, we will see you later.